uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, assuming that is that somebody is watching. Um, and welcome, Peter. Nice to see you again. Um, Thanks, Trevor. You too. In real wintry Cape Town weather. Mm. Uh, many of my colleagues have gone to sunnier climes, although uh, I suppose that right at the moment there are certain advantages in being in Cape Town compared with some other places. Anyway, let's not talk about that. Um, Right, our topic for this afternoon is uh, substance versus form, which is um, very often a, a, a something that is required when one is asked to express an opinion um, in relation to an, an arrangement. No, no uh, value attached to the use of the word arrangement, um, a contract or what a, a, a transaction. Um, Will it, will it survive the test of substance over form? Okay, so I'll, I'll kick off um, just with a bit of background and then Peter will take over and then as usual, we'll, we'll start chatting to each other. Um, I think the logical place to start is the case of Zandberg versus Fonsell, which is a 1910 decision of Judge Innes. He was then Innes JA, which meant he'd not yet become uh, a chief justice. Uh, and he's, of course, one of our outstanding judges. And he said the following, um, and this is quoted by Judge Watermay in the Randalls Brothers case. So Innes J.A. said the following, now as a general rule, the parties to a contract express themselves in language calculated without subterfuge or concealment to embody the agreement at which they have arrived. They intend the contract to be exactly what it purports and the shape which it assumes is what they meant it should have. Not infrequently, however, either to secure some advantage which otherwise the law would not give or to escape some disability which otherwise the law would impose, the parties to a transaction endeavor to conceal its real character. They call it by a name or give it a shape intended not to express but to disguise its true nature. And when the court is asked to decide any rights under such an agreement, it can only do so by giving effect to what the transaction really is, not what in form it purports to be. The maxim then applies plus valet quad agitur quam quad simulate concipitur, and don't ask me to translate it, it's hard enough to pronounce it. But the words of the rule indicate its limitations. The court must be satisfied that there is a real intention, definitely ascertainable, which differs from the simulated intention. For if the parties in fact mean that a contract shall have effect in accordance with its tenor, the circumstances that the same object might have been attained in another way will not necessarily make the arrangement other than it purports to be. The inquiry therefore is in each case one of fact for the right solution of which no general rule can be laid down. Right, that's what Innes CJ said in Zandberg versus Fonsell. And then Judge Watermeyer in Randall's Brothers um, versus uh, Commissioner for Customs and Excise versus Randall Brothers and Hudson said the following. And these are two of our really all-time great judges, Innes and, and Watermeyer. So Watermeyer said, I wish to draw particular attention to the words, quote, a real intention, 
definitely ascertainable, which differs from the simulated intention, because they indicate clearly what the learned judge meant by a disguised transaction. A transaction is not necessarily a disguised one because it is devised for the purpose of evading the prohibition in the act or avoiding liability for the tax imposed in it, imposed by it. The transaction devised for that purpose, if the parties honestly intended to have effect according to its tenor, is interpreted by the courts according to its tenor. And then the only question is whether, so interpreted, it falls within or without the prohibition or tax. A disguised transaction, in the sense in which the words are used above, is something different. In essence, it is a dishonest transaction. Dishonest in as much as the parties do not really intend it to have into parties, in other words, amongst themselves, the legal effect which its terms convey to the outside world. The purpose of the disguise is to, see, is to deceive by concealing what the real agreement or transaction between the parties is. The parties wish to hide the fact that their real agreement or transaction falls within the prohibition or is subject to the tax um, and so on. Such a transaction is said to be in fraudem legis, in fraud of the law, and is interpreted by the courts in accordance with what is found to be the real agreement or transaction before the, between the parties. Of course, before the court can find that a transaction is in fraudem legis in the above sense, it must be satisfied that there is some unexpressed agreement or tacit understanding between the parties. If this were not so, it could not find that the ostensible agreement is a pretense. The blurring of this distinction between an honest transaction devised to avoid the provisions of a statute and a transaction falling within the prohibitory or taxing provisions of a statute, but disguised to make it appear as if it does not, gives rise to most of the confusion, which sometimes appears to accompany attempts to apply the maxim quoted above. So I think what Watermeyer was adding was that it's not enough just to allege that something is um, a sham or uh, not the substance of a transaction, but only, only the form. In order to say that something is a sham, you've got to say what the real transaction is. So if SARS suggest to the taxpayer that the transaction is, is a sham or is simulated, it's up to them to then say, well, what, what is the real transaction? Okay, so much uh, for that. That is kind of introductory. Um, in, 19, in 2010, a judgment which is probably well known in tax circles, um, was handed down by the Supreme Court of Appeal and uh, Judge Lewis, who happens to have been in my class at university. Um, so I do know her otherwise than just having appeared in front of her. Uh, she gave a judgment in the case of NWK. And in paragraph 55 of her judgment, uh, she said the following, in my view, the test to determine simulation cannot simply be whether there is an intention to give effect to a transaction in accordance with its terms. In other words, what had been said by Innes. Invariably, where the parties structure a transaction to achieve an objective other than the one ostensibly achieved, 
they will give it, they will intend to give effect to the transaction on the terms agreed. The test should thus go further and require an examination of the commercial sense of the transaction, of its real substance and purpose. And here's the killer. If the purpose of the transaction is only to achieve an object that allows the evasion of tax or of a peremptory law, then it will be regarded as simulated. And the mere fact that the parties do perform in terms of the contract does not show that it is not simulated. The charade of performance is generally meant to give credence to their simulation. Now that set the cat amongst the pigeons mm -hmm. and uh, a number of people wrote, had something to say about, about that. And I was one of them, but uh, there are other more learned people than me who expressed similar views and and took uh, the court to task for for, for seemingly change, changing the test um but that's the beginning of the story and not the end of the story and peter's now going to take the story a bit further <laughs> thanks trevor thanks a lot and i think i think the line that i i, I listened to when you gave the quote in nwk is the test should thus go further and require an examination of the commercial sense of the transaction of its real substance and purpose and our concern, your concern, my concern, the concern of a lot of us in the advisory world is that um, this judgment imported a new test for simulation. So it didn't just look at whether a transaction was disguised. Um, it also looked at whether there was a commercial purpose for the particular transaction. And that was something new. Um, so when you're looking at when we started writing opinions after NWK, you looked at whether a transaction was disguised or dishonest. And then you also had to test whether there was a commercial purpose in relation to that transaction. And that led to all sorts of interesting debates amongst us, Trevor, for example, what is commercial purpose? Uh, purpose is a subjective test, but is commercial purpose, is that somehow import some level of objective um, analysis into looking at a transaction? Can or is there an equivalence between purpose in commercial purpose and purpose in GAR, which looks at the sole or main purpose? So, is this, you know, has this imported some part of the GAR provisions into our law relating to simulation or substance over form? And the world became a tricky place for us tax lawyers in terms of advising on simulation for a number of years. And, and then in March, 2014, the Roshkon case came along, and that was a unanimous judgment of the SCA delivered by Judge Shongwe. Uh, the facts were very briefly that uh, Roshkon bought a whole lot of trucks, and Westbank financed them, and Westbank reserved ownership in relation to those trucks until they'd been paid for. And Roshkon said, hang on, that's a simulated transaction. There's no commercial purpose behind this. And, and the real transaction is that you, West Bank, have lent me money and I, Roshkon, have provided security over my trucks. And this reservation of ownership to you, West Bank, is simulated. And we, the courts need to ignore that. Uh, so the, the, the argument was who owned the trucks, effectively. Uh, and the Supreme Court of Appeal very gently nudged our law back onto and even keel and back into the path of simulation that you quoted, Trevor, in those earlier cases. Um, 
and it basically said the NWK judgment and the piece that we've that we've quoted and, and focused on must be read in context. And it wasn't the intention of the court to establish the, to upset the established principles. And it restated the simulation doctrine as being um, along the following lines. A simulated transaction is one where there's a deliberate disguise, disguising the transaction. It's a dishonest transaction. It's a transaction where you say one thing, but you actually intend something else. They went on to say it, put it in a positive way and said a test for simulation is, where, is a question of genuineness. If a transaction is genuine, the courts will uh, give effect to it. And if it's not, they'll give effect to the transaction that it conceals. And um, they said that when you're looking at, I always say to my clients, it's, it's the three Ds, dishonesty, deception, and disguise uh, are the test for simulation. And the court said, when you're looking at disguise, you look at you must look at things like are there unusual features uh, which serve no commercial purpose, and are there non-arm's length terms? Is there something strange or unusual about the arrangement? And the presence of unusual features that serve no commercial purpose give rise to a suspicion that it's not genuine. So the test is whether it's genuine or not. But if there's an unusual feature that has no commercial purpose, then you can say, well, is it genuine? Um, and it raises that, that question. Uh, and, and then the court went on to say, well, this was the case in NWK. There were a series of uh, self-canceling features intended to disguise the true nature of the transaction, which was a loan. So they said the requirement of disguise was met in NWK. And therefore, NWK was correctly, uh, was correctly decided. I think it was a little bit of back solving, to be honest, um, you know, to, to get to that position. But it was a very happy day in March 2014 when we read the Roshkan case from the SCA, Trevor. And, and, and well, I think the, the, that sort of takes us to the next judgment, which was the, the Bosch case. Yeah. Can, can I just, uh, I've, got, I've got the um, Wallace's judgment in Roshkan here. And uh, in a footnote, he, he says it. This is this is writing at the time. Uh, it appears that in some circles, this he's just quoted what what Carol Lewis had said, mm. and particularly the statement blah 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 has been understood to condemn as simulated transactions any and all contractual arrangements that enable the parties to avoid tax or the operation of some law seen as adverse to their interests. And then there's a footnote. And he refers to four people. The first one is me, an article <laughs> in the taxpayer. Then any Eddie Bromberg SC, NWK and Founders in the taxpayer. Somebody called CJ Pretorius. Um, and then Andrew Hutchinson and Dale Hutchinson um, in the South African Law Journal. And I can I just use this opportunity to say <laughs> I'm very happy to keep company with Eddie Bromberg. And Dale Hutchinson. <laughs> <laughs> and all and quoted in the taxpayer, of course. Where else? Of course, of course, yeah. Um, just while reading uh, what, what Watermeyer had said, um, I just noticed to myself uh, the word pretense. You know, what, what, what uh, Wallace held in, in Roshkon is that, in a nutshell, the, the contract must be genuine. Test for simulation is whether or not it's genuine. And another way of looking at it is, is it a pretense? 
If the answer is yes, then it is. And, you know, I, 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 this is not trying to be um, personal in, in relation to the judge who wrote the judgment in, in NWK, but, but uh, really the court could have come to the conclusion that it did without that paragraph 55 um, of the judgment. It wasn't necessary to take the test any further. The, the, the taxpayer failed the test on the old test. I think um, that's the but, point. It was a disguised transaction. They were, yeah. as I said, self-canceling features uh, that were yeah. there to disguise its true nature, which was a loan. So they yeah. didn't need to go further and sort of look at commercial purpose. Yeah. Then uh, hot on the heels of, of Roshcon comes the decision of Bosch. Um, so can I just say this as well? I, my feeling was always that uh, I can't quite remember how you put it, Peter, but I think I think uh, I think uh, the, the Wallace in 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 Roshkon was gently putting. He, he was saying that everyone has misunderstood what the judge said. I don't think we misunderstood what the judge said. I think he's he's gently correcting what she said, but without saying so, being very ultra diplomatic. Anyway, hot on the heels of that came the Bosch case. And in the Bosch case, Judge Wallace again, same judge, uh, said in paragraph 40, he said that submission involved a misunderstanding of the judgment in NWK, as was pointed out in Roshkon. And then he says, there I stress that simulation is a question of the genuineness of the transaction under consideration. If it is a genuine, if it is genuine, then it is not simulated. And if it is simulated, then it is a dishonest transaction, whatever the motives of those who concluded the transaction. The true position is that the court examines the transaction as a whole, including all the surrounding circumstances. Well, I don't, Peter, I'm sure you, neither you nor I would ever have denied that you look at all the circumstances in deciding Absolutely. whether something is a sham or not. Um, but then he goes on to say, uh, Tax evasion is, of course, impermissible, and therefore, if a transaction is simulated, it may amount to tax evasion. But then he says something which I always think is very important. He says, but there is nothing impermissible about arranging one's affairs so as to minimize one's tax liability. In other words, in tax avoidance. If the authorities regard any particular form of tax avoidance as undesirable, they are free to amend the act as occurs annually to close anything they regard as a loophole. That is what occurred when section 8C was introduced. This case was about section 8A and that's what done. And why I think that's quite interesting is, is uh, what role does the GAR, the general anti-avoidance rule play? Um, you know, it's almost saying here that um, but you don't always look at the guard. You, you, you know that if, if the taxpayer has successfully avoided tax, um, then the SARS remedy is not necessarily to, to use the guard, but, but to amend the act. Anyway, let's not get uh, sidetracked. Time for, for, for Judge Lewis to, to enter the stage once more. <laughs> enter stage left. It's, it's karma. So the Sassel Oil Judgment was handed down November 2018 and was handed down by Judge Carol Lewis. Um, again, a simulation matter. 
So the facts here are quite interesting, uh, Sasol oil importing uh, product from overseas. And uh, they had a company in the Isle of Man, the acronym is SOIL. So SOIL basically um, imported product and sold it to Sasol oil in South Africa. And that meant that SOIL's profit was allocated to South Africa under the control of foreign company rules. <laughs> So Sassel decided instead of doing that, they were going to get Soil, the Isle of Man company, to sell the product to a, a UK company whose acronym is Sisal. And Sisal will then take the product and sell it to Sassel Oil. The effect of this is that Soil, the Isle of Man company, is no longer selling to a connected resident. It is selling to a connected non-resident. So its profit is no longer allocated and attributed to South Africa under the control of foreign company rules. And so that was taken to court by SARS using simulation and saying that the introduction of the CISL entity, this UK entity, was uh, simulated and was not real, and that the true transaction was a sale from soil down to Sassel oil. So uh, Judge Lewis uh, wrote the judgment and again stated that the laws uh, in, in respect of the test for simulation was not changed by the judgment of the court in NWK and said that again, confirmed that simulation is a test of the genuineness of the transaction under consideration. The transaction is genuine, it's not simulated, and if it's simulated, then it's a dishonest transaction. So stating the law as it was pre-NWK and saying NWK again didn't change the law. And the majority of the court, in this case, there was a minority dissenting judgment, uh, but the majority of the court um, found that the transactions between uh, soil and sisal and sassel oil were all genuine transactions. They had legitimate purpose and that there were good commercial reasons for introducing sisal into the supply chain. So they found that, um, that these transactions were genuine, they weren't simulated and therefore uh, again, SARS, SARS lost, lost that case. So, but, but interesting, and again, I mentioned this under Rushcon, and it, I think it's important to note that the courts will look at all the circumstances and they look for unusual features in the context of seeing whether a transaction is disguised. And if it's disguised, then it's dishonest and it's simulated. So interesting that, you know, looking at in, in, this, in the Sassel case, uh, again, saying there are good commercial reasons for introducing SISO. Now, that's again, it's, it's not the test for simulation, but one needs to be a little bit careful about this disguise concept to make sure that a transaction doesn't have an element of disguise. And what we obviously tell clients is if there's an unusual feature of a transaction that doesn't seem to have a commercial rationale, you need to understand why it's there because that does raise the specter of somebody saying, you're disguising something, you wouldn't normally enter into this transaction, so what are you really doing? So, um, but again, uh, hold that simulation as a test of honesty, and if the transaction is genuine and it's not dishonest, then it's not simulated. And interesting, Trevor, that there have been, since that case, I've noticed SARS sort of steering a little bit away from simulation arguments and focusing more on sort of the guard provisions and I think after, you know, after Roshcon, Bosch and Sassel Oil all kind of saying much the same thing, yeah. I think, you know, SARS have stayed away from sort of arguing that something because it might lack some commercial purpose 
uh, fails the test for simulation. Hmm. Now, it's interesting that uh, in, in the Sassel case, um, I've got an extract from the judgment here. Uh, Judge Lewis quotes her own paragraph 55 from, from NWK. Uh, and she says that the judgment in that matter was apparently thought to have changed the law. It did not. It pointed out merely that in order to establish simulation, one could not look only at the terms of the disputed transaction. As it, and it suggested that simulation was to be established not by considering only the terms of the transaction, but also the probabilities in the context in which they were concluded. That was surely always the case. And I mean, an example of where, where the court did find that there was simulation was um, the Ladysmith case. Remember, that was a case where um, you had, a, I think, a, if I remember correctly, a holding company which led property to a pension fund, which then led it to the subsidiary company. And there was no obligation to erect buildings, which uh, buildings were erected by the lessee. So the lessee got, got a deduction, but there was no obligation on the part of the, uh, no right in the part of the lessor. And uh, it, it was easy for the court to say yes, but that was clearly understood by all of the parties. You know? um, so yes, I mean, they, they, you know, it is something that must be taken seriously, but I think the test is, is not correct. It's a test for genuineness, and, and really, that that that's it. I agree, and there's a it's interesting because there's what some people refer to as the label doctrine or the label principle. And that hasn't been separated out from the simulation stroke substance over form stroke sham doctrine uh, that yeah. has been addressed in the cases we've discussed, Trevor. But for me, there's something like a, almost a parallel sort of um, principle that says if I sell you something and on the front cover of our, of our sale agreement, I say I call it a lease agreement, that doesn't make it a lease agreement. You look at what you truly intended, you read the, you read the contract, and you say this is a contract of sale the fact that you've yeah. labeled it lease doesn't mean that it becomes a lease agreement and it seems yeah. trite but yeah. i think that that to me is slightly different because that's sort of a label by attaching a label to something doesn't mean that that is what it is you still have to yeah. look at the legal consequences of the transaction you've entered into and to me that's a slightly parallel concept that's not yeah. dishonesty yeah. No, i agree and no, it's, it's it, you know i think it is worth making the point that mm -hmm. substance and form can also operate, you know, it's, it's often used to, dis, to describe a dishonest transaction, the fraudum legis, as we've been discussing. But if you take the old case of Ochberg, that's where uh, in consideration for him assigning a lease from the railways and undertaking um, certain commitments for the future, the, the remainder of the authorized but unissued shares in the company were, were issued to someone who was effectively the sole shareholder for apart from a negligible amount of shares, he was the sole shareholder of the company anyway. And uh, that case is very interesting because, because the court split, I think, three ways. Um, and, you know, some said that there was no accrual because, because he didn't receive anything that he didn't already have because he effectively was the sole shareholder anyway. And then and the majority found the opposite. But the interesting thing is that both parties used the substance, or two of the judgments used the concept of substance over form, but to, to justify the opposite conclusions. Uh -huh. 
and and uh, and there was no attempt to deceive anybody. Mm. They were just, yes. you know, that was a, a case where where um, uh, Mr. Ochberg was was in form receiving something, but in substance, some would say he didn't receive nothing that he didn't already have, and then the mm. test was used the other way around. But no one would suggest that there was anything dishonest about that. So it can apply in a, in a, in a situation where there's no, that's different to simulation. Simulation exactly. implies, just implies some intent, yeah. Exactly, it's just a different doctrine. Yeah. Very interesting, but a happy happy ending to the story, Trevor. So yes, far. indeed, indeed, yeah. <laughs> and even, even uh, Judge Lewis, who was so misunderstood, is now on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> and delivered what I think might be the last word on this incessive oil, which I think is fitting. Yeah, yeah. I must say, I once obtained a copy of a speech that she gave at, at some function to award a prize to, to a competition for people who wrote the best tax thesis in a particular year. And uh, I, I happened to get a written copy of, of her speech. And she, at the, you know, she was, she's, she said, she knows she's controversial because of the NWK and the Founders Hill cases, and she's not going to discuss those this evening. She then proceeded to discuss virtually nothing else. <laughs> and she made the point that, you know, one of the things she was criticized for in, in, in NWK was using the term evasion, where I think what she intended was avoidance. Because obviously if it's evasion, then, then it is simulation, in, end of story, yeah. Um, and she, she made the point that she does understand the difference between evasion and avoidance. And Vrachtach, right at the end of her speech, she used the word evasion again, in the sense where it should have been avoidance. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's purely anecdotal. And I suppose that's what makes law interesting, that we, we have different opinions and there's always something to discuss. And, yeah. You know, it's, it, as, as uh, Eddie Bromberg, who we mentioned earlier, said in his delightful book, um, Tax Strategy, that there's a there's a Kafkaesque aspect to tax, you know, that somehow seems somehow unreal and a bit arbitrary and all of that, but but the consequences of thereof can be all too real when you have to write out a check. Peter, yeah. I think our time is up, but uh, it's always always fun chatting with you. And, yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Till the next time. Yeah. Okay, great, great to see you again. Bye-bye.